everybody. Perhaps some of us are familiar with the story, uh, The Emperor's New Clothes. And if not, you're in luck, because I'm going to tell you the story. Uh, the Emperor's New Clothes, it follows an emperor who is obsessed with his wardrobe. He spends all of his time and his money on his clothes. And one day, two swindlers come into town, and they are dressed beautifully. And they set up their display, and on the tables are the most finest fabrics, the newest trends, the most beautiful patterns. But, they say, their absolutely most high-end, finest, and most precious fabrics can only be seen by those who are worthy. And if you are not worthy, then poor you. You can't see it. And so the emperor falls into the deception, you see. And the emperor thinks, yes, yes, these clothes, they are perfect for me because I am the most noble. I am the most worthy. And of course, he could see all of the finest fabric and all of the best clothes because he's worthy. And so he pays the swindlers all kinds of money to make an outfit perfect for just him. And so the swindlers take the money and they work day and night their loom is spinning with the finest invisible silk. They are working on the most detailed of invisible patterns. And if you couldn't see it, well, of course you couldn't see it. You're not worthy. And so the emperor is curious about the work, so he sends his servants to go look at the progress. See, how are my clothes looking? And the servants go, and out of sheer embarrassment and fear of being looked at as unworthy, they look at the invisible fabric, they look at the empty spinning loom, and they say, beautiful. That is beautiful. What vibrant colors, what fine patterns. And they come back and report to the emperor, your clothes is beautiful. And so the emperor is excited. The whole town is excited because they want to see the emperor's new clothes. And the day approaches and the charlatans are pretending to work hard on their loom with their invisible fabric. And so the day finally comes and the charlatans stand and they present their work. They look proud. They look tired because they have been working so hard. And so the emperor goes into the fitting room. He undresses. He looks at the pants, and he says, so fine, so delicate, light as air. And the emperor proceeds to put on the pants and the shirt and the, coat and the coat. And then, wow, everyone in the room, so scared to be labeled as being unworthy, they applaud the emperor and his clothes. They say, wow, that is magnificent. And the crowd outside is anticipating the announcement of the emperor and his new clothes, and he steps out, and the crowd is in shock. But again, the fear of being unworthy, and so they play along. Beautiful, wonderful, it fits perfectly. And so the emperor parades around the streets of the town in his birthday suit. Everyone applauding him until finally a child from the crowd looks at him and cries out, this guy's naked. He doesn't have anything on. And the whispers begin. And soon enough, the whole crowd 
cries out, you're naked. You have nothing on. And the emperor suspects that they might be right, but he cannot admit it. So he doubles down and walks around as proud as ever, forcing his noblemen to carry the invisible train of his robe behind him as he walks around town. It's a silly story, but it it provides a lesson for all of us. A lesson on how one can be so blind and so unaware of how one cannot see what is so in front of them because we are so blinded by our pride. And as we listen in on Paul's letter to the Corinthians this morning, we see that Paul is addressing a similar issue. And we see a clear shift in Paul's tone and voice. You see, up to this point, Paul speaks in polite metaphors. But in chapter 4, we see him shift to blunt commands, accusing rhetorical questions, even insulting sarcasm. Paul uses a harsh and biting tone to address the pride that was so rampant and prevalent in the Corinthian church. This was a church that was super proud. And it was not subtle or nuanced. It was loud. Everyone could see it. It was in everyone's face, clear to see, except to the Corinthians, who were blinded and duped and deceived by their own pride. And so Paul cries out, can you not see that you all are naked? Are you not seeing what is so plain and obvious? Are you that blinded by your own pride? Two things, sorry, I just skipped a whole chunk. It should not be hard for us to see that at times we bear some resemblance to the Corinthian church. That all of us in this room, we are vulnerable to the temptation that is described here. The temptation to be puffed up. In fact, I would wager to one degree or another, all of us have arrived here today puffed up with pride in some way. And as we listen in on Paul's heart for the Corinthians, not just to learn something new, but to pay careful attention to these words and to allow these words to have their grace-imparting effect on our hearts and our minds to deflate our pride, to edify our souls, and ultimately redirect our lives and our hearts to God and for his glory and his glory alone. Two points, two things, two truths that Paul reminds the Corinthians of. Two truths that Paul draws there and our attention to here in this passage today. Two effects of understanding the gospel of grace and how it helps us to view ourselves and how it shapes the way that we view the Christian life as well. Point number one, the first effect of the gospel of grace. The first effect of the gospel of grace is that it helps us to view ourselves and to understand the Christian life as one that produces humility. If I can just shorten that that for us today is the gospel of grace produces humility. Take a look at verse 6 with me. It reads this. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos, For your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, and that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one or against another. Notice that Paul describes the Corinthians as being puffed up. 
And what were they so puffed up about? They were puffed up. They were proud of their spirituality. They thought they were holier than. They were puffed up, proud of their wisdom. They thought they were smarter than. They were puffed up, proud proud of their status as being gifted. They thought they were more talented than. And their pride was being revealed in their desire to proclaim allegiance to one particular leader over another. If I can just sum it up in these words, they were saying, well, I follow this leader because he is smarter, because he's a better leader, because he's more gifted and talented, and therefore I must be more talented and more gifted and smarter than you who follows this leader. Surely if you follow that leader, you must not know something. (laughs) I feel bad for you. And so Paul shows his care for the Corinthian church by confronting, confronting their arrogance and their ignorance. And it is important that we don't misunderstand Paul here and his motivations. You see, he is motivated by a fatherly care. If you guys look in verse 6, it says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for whose benefit? Not for Paul's own benefit, but for your benefit. We read again later on in verses 14 through 15, he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So Paul, like a good father would, in the gospel addresses them. And for their benefit, he's going to remind them about the gospel of grace. And if you truly believe in the gospel of grace, it will lead to humility. Because the gospel of grace produces humility in the Christian. So how does Paul go about doing this? How is he going to do this for the Corinthian church? Could you take a look at verse 7 with me? It reads this. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? He asks questions. He asks questions that help remind the Corinthians of what is truly important and what is central to the Christian life. In his book, Odyssey, From Pepsi to Apple, John Scully writes in his memoir, he describes how Steve Jobs repeatedly sought to recruit Scully from his position at Pepsi to come over to Apple and to become the president at Apple. And each time Jobs asked, Scully declined, but Jobs would not give up. And then came a night, one night, where both men were on the balcony of Scully's New York condo, and Jobs asked him again, when are you going to come to Apple? And again, Scully declined. The money is not right. Jobs countered, don't worry about the money. We can make it work. But Scully remained unconvinced. And Jobs, obviously exasperated, asked John, Do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugar water? Or do you want to come with me and change the world? And Scully comments, It was as if someone reached up and delivered a stiff blow to my stomach. The question was a monstrous one. One for which I had no answer is simply not the wind out of me. This powerful question served as a moment of clarity for Scully. To remind him, what is most important? What is most central to your life? And in verse 7, we see the questions that Paul asks. 
questions with the intent to knock the wind out of those who are filled with pride. Questions that come to save when we have the tendency to be puffed up. Questions that are gracious gifts that remind the believer of the gospel of grace. And we're going to run through these questions quickly and do inventory of our lives here as well. Question one, for who sees anything different in you, Paul asks. Who and what makes you different from anybody else? You see, the Corinthians, they took took pride in themselves. Their pride in their spirituality, their talents, their accomplishments, their giftings. And to Paul, all that did was it revealed a serious ignorance and serious blindness, a serious lack of awareness of how they have become Christians in the first place and why they are still Christian to the present day. Paul asks, what is so different about you? What makes you different from any other Christian? What makes you different from any other non-Christian? In other words, what is your basis in taking pride in being a Christian? Because to be a Christian means there is no basis or grounds for pride and self-exaltation. Because any and all difference within the Christian is attributable to God and to God alone. It's all about God, Paul says. And that's what Paul has been doing this entire time. In chapter 1, he points the Corinthians' attention to the fact that God had chosen them. Chapter 2, he points to the fact that God revealed the mystery. You didn't understand it. You could never understand it. Only when God revealed it to you could you discover God. You couldn't do it on your own. Chapter 3, he addresses all the growth in the Corinthians' life and says, you think you did that? You think I did that? No. It is only God alone who can grow. And everything that is distinctive, unique, and special, and beautiful about the Corinthian church, he says, is attributable to God alone. What made them different? Why are they different? What makes them unique? The answer is clear as day and obvious, but not to those who are blinded by pride. And if you are in this room, and you are a follower of Jesus Christ as the Savior from your sins, and that your life here on this earth is all a journey to live for his glory and his glory alone by looking more and more like him, your story is no different. For every Christian, the answer is the same. What makes you unique? What makes you different? God graciously chose you. He chose me. God graciously revealed the gospel to you, to me. He graciously saved me. He graciously gave me the gift of repentance and faith. He and only he is what makes us different. There's nothing else that makes you different. There's nothing else that makes you better. This is the only thing that matters. Questions two and three, what do you have that you did not receive? He follows up. And the obvious answer that was apparently not obvious to the Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? Well, the answer would be nothing. Everything we have is a gift. Everything that we have was given to us by grace. So if nothing originates with you, if you have done nothing to earn anything, how can you boast, he says? How can you be proud of something that you didn't work for? If everything given to you was out of grace. You hear these questions, and in his commentary, Gordon Fee writes of these questions. And I think it's appropriate for us. It says, here is an invitation to experience one of those rare unguarded moments of total honesty 
where in the presence of the eternal God, one recognizes that everything absolutely one has is a gift. The questions that Paul asks is an invitation to you and I. Come into the presence of the eternal God. Come, step into the presence of the creator of the world, the king, the judge, the savior, and answer before him, what do I have that you did not give me? All of it is grace. Nothing is deserved. Nothing is earned. It is all a gift. An expression of God's amazing grace to those who are undeserving. First and foremost, yes, it starts with salvation. It's a gift. But not just that, it extends into every crevice of our life. Take inventory of your life and ask yourself this question often. What, did you, what do you have that you did not receive? Could I ask you guys real quickly, are you skilled? Are you just like really good at something? Mechanical, you're artistic, you're exceptionally smart, you're really good at relationships? Fill in the blank. Everyone has a skill that they're good at. And that skill was given to you as a gift. Are you knowledgeable in a certain area? If so, God has given you a mind with the capacity for that specialty as a gift. Have you achieved recently or attained a position or a job or a title? Could I remind you that this morning that God gave you that opportunity? That it was a gift to you? And if you're thinking, John, I get it, I get it, I get it. Gifts, 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 great. But don't you know I work hard? And I'm sure you have worked hard. But let me remind you that God gave you the strength to work hard in the process as a gift. And God gave you health as a gift so you can continue to work hard. And even the very motivation to work hard is a gift from God. What do you have that you did not receive? There's only one correct answer for everyone. And the answer is nothing. Everything we have received. I love this quote attributed to Charles Spurgeon. Let me read for us really quickly. It says, Oh, great believer, you would have been a great sinner if God had not made you to differ. Oh, you who are, who are valiant for truth, you would have been valiant for error if grace had not laid hold on you. Don't be so proud. If God had made you not to differ, where would you and I be? Let me save you some time and, and answer that question for you. You'd be a great sinner. If God had not made you differ, where would you be? Don't be blinded. Don't be deceived. You and I would be great sinners because everything we have is a gift from him. The second point, and we'll move quicker with the second point here. The second effect of the gospel of grace. The second effect of the gospel of grace is that grace prepares us for suffering. The gospel of grace prepares us for suffering. Take a look at verses 8 through 13 with me. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And with that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God had exhibited us, us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sakes, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. 
To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, refuse of all things. If verse 6 through 7 highlighted the gospel of grace and its effect on the proud and prideful, in humbling them, in producing humility, the second effect of the gospel of grace is that it prepares believers for times and tests of suffering, times of adversity and hardship. And both tests, tests of being tempted to be puffed up, and tests of adversity are tests that Christians should be familiar with. Except the Corinthian church was not prepared for what Paul has to say in verses 8 through 13. You'll see here the following word emphasized by Paul in verse 8. Already. He says, already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. Already you have become kings. I hope you can sense the irony there. Paul's tone is full of irony. And it is in the irony that Paul is addressing their erroneous view of themselves of their spirituality, and of the Christian life. You see, the Christians wrongly believed and assumed that they had already arrived. They had already reached the mountaintop. They had already learned all that they need to know. They had already reached the ultimate spiritual level. They had already reached mastery of the Christian life. They had one category for the Christian life, and it is summed up in the word already. We're already done. We already made it. They were about the already, and it made them blind to their sin. It minimized sin, and so they stopped guarding against it. They had reached the highest level of spiritual gifts, and so they didn't care about love. Who cares? Love was not a priority to them. They had already experienced the most supernatural of spiritual experiences, and so their day-to-day Christian walk, who cares about Christian ethics? It's not important. We already reached the highest experience. So are assuming that their spirituality, their gifts, their riches, their prosperous state, their blessing, they're assuming that those things are a confirmation of God's approval on their life. They think that because I am this way, because I am smarter, because I have all these giftings, because I have achieved this level, God must love me. I'm hashtag blessed. Look at my life. And yet Paul reminds them about the gospel of grace in verses 8 through 13. You see how he does it? He contrasts the Corinthians' supposed spirituality with his own hardship and suffering. And in the contrast, he shapes and redefines for the Corinthians the Christian life as a life of service, sacrifice, weakness, hardship, and suffering. He says the Christian life is a life where one is called to die to oneself. Notice the contrast here. He says, you are kings. It's irony. Me? I'm sentenced to death. You are wise. Me? I'm a fool. You're strong. Me? I'm weak. You are prosperous, held in honor by the world. They look at you and think they must have something going right. But me? I'm being persecuted and suffering. The Corinthian church had created a theology of glory, 
And what Paul is doing here is he's confronting them and reintroducing to them with a theology of the cross. Say, to follow Christ means to die. It means to carry your cross. And you can bet that the description that Paul gives of himself here, the description that Paul gives of the Christian life here, the Corinthians despised it. They hated hearing Paul describe the Christian life as this. And the things they despised were all the things the Corinthians should have aspired for. It is important to understand that Paul is not using hyperbole here. That Paul is not glorifying suffering. He is not exaggerating his suffering to glorifying himself. All he is doing is defining the Christian life as the scriptures present it to be. That we all live in a fallen world. A world that is opposed to the gospel of grace. And to identify with the gospel of grace and the wisdom of God that is revealed through the work on the cross is to embrace the cross. That we will all appear weak and foolish to the world. We should. We will all be opposed by the world. We should. And to differing degrees, all who identify with Christ will suffer. And yet it is part of God's good and perfect purpose and plan for his sons and daughters. You see, for Paul, weakness, hardship, and suffering, these were the marks. If you saw these things in your life, these were the marks of Christ's ownership over you. If these things were present in your life, that meant that you were his, that you were Christ's, and that you had the privilege to participate in the service of a Savior who died for you. And there is a strength that we can receive and derive from this. When we can frame our suffering, when we can frame our hardship and our difficulty through the lens of not just verses 8 through 13, but the entire scriptures, that may be, we should not be surprised by the presence of suffering and hardship in the Christian life. That we should even expect it. And the gospel of grace prepares us for suffering in the Christian life. Because when we encounter suffering or hardship, we are not tempted to feel hopeless. We are not tempted to feel cursed. We are not tempted to feel unworthy. We are not tempted to scream, oh, God, what the heck? But in humility, that we can acknowledge that this season is a mark of Christ's ownership over our lives. And when we suffer, we have the privilege to participate in following the footsteps of a Savior who took on the cross for us. Grace prepares the believer for seasons of suffering. Grace produces humility for those who are proud and prideful. And those are the two things that we build the Christian life upon. Let me end with this story here. You know, our front yard in front of our house, it's a landscape. It's a desert landscape. So all we have is rocks and cactus. And we have a bunch of cactus, but one of the cactus is like so much taller 
than all the other cactuses. It steals all the water, I think, from all the other cactuses. It towers over the cactus. It looks healthy, as, ha as healthy as cactus could look. It's green. And a couple of weeks ago, I was pulling into the driveway, and I noticed that cactus looks like it's leaning a little bit. But I wasn't sure because I never really like, paid attention to the cactus. And it looks like it's leaning, and I was like, huh, is that leaning? Maybe, maybe not. We'll see. And then over the next couple of days, I keep looking at the cactus. Is it leaning more today? No, I think it was like that yesterday. And I take pictures to, to see the progression of the leaning cactus. And so I start Googling, why, why is my cactus leaning? Why, why, why? It looks so healthy. It looks great. Why is it leaning? And by far, the most popular answer to why is my cactus leaning is a phenomenon called cactus rot, where the roots and the foundation of the cactus become infected and thus starts to rot from the bottom. Everything could look healthy, but the root is infected and is starting to rot, and it turns unstable and is unable to support the weight of the cactus, and thus the cactus leans. And of course, I'm looking at the cactus, and I think, no way. This cactus looks far too healthy. It's far too green. It's far too tall. No way that it is rotting. And of course, one morning, I am pulling out of my driveway. I look to the right, and the cactus is gone. The upper two-thirds of the cactus is now on the ground. It had fallen over. So I walk over to the cactus, and sure enough, the cactus looks like it's rotting on the inside. It doesn't matter what it looks like on the outside. It doesn't matter if you're looking at your life and you're seeing all these things and you look at those things and you think, oh, look at me, great. It doesn't matter if your neighbor looks at you and thinks, oh, their life, so great, must have something right going on for them. If the foundation, if everything that your life is built upon is rotting, if it's not built upon grace, for the Christian, your life is going to fall apart. Nothing is going to make sense. And so for us this morning, I ask, what are you, as a Christian, building your life upon? Maybe you started off right. Maybe you have built all these things and over time, somehow you have gotten lost and you have fallen into the temptation to be puffed up about where you are and you've forgotten about the gospel of grace. And I pray that the gospel of grace reminds you, what is it that you have that you did not receive? Nothing. Or maybe today you are in a season of suffering, a season of hardship and difficulty. Could I ask you to consider the gospel of grace and what it has to say about the season that you are in now. That you can be thankful for that moment. That it marks Christ's ownership over you. That he is with you. And that in some way, he, that hardship is part of God's perfect purpose and plan for you. Let me pray and close our time together for us today. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just... God, your grace. We pray, Lord, that all the hearts in this room, my heart included, 
that we would be sensitive to just what it is that you have to say. The scripture would speak to us in the way that we need it to in our time of need. God, we pray, Lord, that if anything, that today that we will walk away better understanding or reminded again, who are we? What is it that we have apart from you? Nothing. Or would you help us to cherish the cross ever so tightly today, this week? We love you so much. We pray all of this in your son's wonderful name. Amen.